Man Listening is ad-free, commercial-free, and listener-supported. If you like what you hear and you believe in elevating the powerful stories of strong women, just go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot org, and look for Man Listening. Thanks so much. And I was so full of shame. For the next seven or eight months, every time I walked by a mirror, I turned sideways to see if the baby bump was coming. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi, I'm Stuart Watson, and welcome to Man Listening. I have tried to get to, to land an interview with Gina Stewart for months, if not years. I, it's been over a year since I've asked her. A musician, entrepreneur, creative spirit, really interesting person. One of those kind of people who makes Charlotte just tons more interesting, just contributes so much. She runs a little eatery, little diner now, which I encourage you to go to, called Eastside Local. She calls it ESL, but she's played in all manner of bands over the years. And it is right next to one of Charlotte's real hidden gems, a place called Vizart, which is no mere video store. It is a cultural resource with over 30,000 films, videos, the largest collection on the East Coast. Appeared in Atlas Obscura. It's really fascinating. And she's going to talk about a project which links the two of those. And we get into it about the arts and Charlotte. Um, but mainly, this is about my friend Gina. Enjoy. Where were you born? Wait a minute. I got a plan for you because I listened to you, Stuart. Stuart, whose first name is my last name. So you've blown Where her. you begin, I've blown your plan. That's what I've done. I've blown your plan. What? So you've blown your thing. What's my it? plan? What, what's, what's, what's your plan? My plan is because I listened to you, and I knew that that was going to be the first question. I already knew. I jumped to that conclusion that I'm going to sing you two verses of a song that I wrote that will tell you all that you need to know. Okay. It is my autobiographical song. Well, as long as it's not a copyright, I mean, you're the one, you're letting us use it. I own it. (laughs) If you don't own you, I mean, if, if you don't own you. This is my autobiography, okay? Under the nose of Nixon and in the wake of Vietnam Another white trash baby dropped like a bomb And you prayed for redemption on your bloody knees You take another pill and swallow for the new mouth you feed What a friend you find in Jesus What a friend you'll find When the water turns to wine And you can drown all your sorrow One more time In the blood of the Lamb For the life you left behind On a wing and a prayer In a tin trailer home That got parked a little sideways Left there all alone Killing time like mosquitoes They feed upon your skin This ain't the first time you say never 
two verses of my autobiography. Oh my God. <laughs> you pack a lot in there. Yeah. Anytime you get Nixon and Jesus in the <laughs> <laughs> You're in trouble. <laughs> yes, you are very much in trouble. Okay, uh, where was this trailer park? This trailer park was on Andrews Air Force Base uh, right outside of DC in 1961. Uh, and that song really is, it turns out to be about my mother, um, who I love so dearly. She's still living and my huge creative inspiration and I inherited a lot from my mother, I think. But anyway, my dad was in the Air Force. I grew up with the Blue Angels practicing above my head right out, outside of D.C. on Andrews Air Force Base. Nixon era. My father's job in the Air Force was to guard Air Force One during Nixon. Oh my word. Did he meet Nixon? Mm-hmm. He liked him very much. Do you have a like a autograph White House thing? Did I he... have White House cigarettes. I have presidential <laughs> Have you smoked them? <laughs> no. Did you get desperate? <laughs> it is a wonder, isn't it? I don't even know if they make presidential cigarettes anymore. Somehow I don't see Obama cigarettes. Although, that would be that, great. Yes. Oh, boom. Oh, there boom. we go. There's an idea. There's yes. an idea There's whose time has come. Item. If there were Obama oh. cigarettes, I, I want them. And what you need to do I'll is smoke them. find what his brand was and like rip it off. Like do a duplicate. Do yeah. a generic Obama. Oh my God. It's, yeah, wait, if someone hears this before we trademark <laughs> <laughs> Obama's secret smoke. Okay. <laughs> Only do one a day. <laughs> yeah, they come in packs of one. <laughs> Perfect. That's great. There's another million dollar idea. We're just giving we away go. right here, here in the go. podcast. For purposes of understanding you, what should I know about your mother? You should know that my mother is the most creative person in the world as far as I'm concerned. We were poor. We were a 10 trailer home and we were parked a little bit sideways. How many kids? Uh, two. I have an older sister. Um, my parents gave birth to two artists and they are the shyest people in the world. My mother said, I would rather take an F on my paper than get up and talk in front of people. My mother is funny and creative and clairvoyant. Um, so for a little Southern lady who sees the future and who sees um, what not everyone else sees, it's a startling existence. I think she's a genius. I think she's brilliant. Um, but I don't, I'm not sure she, she has ever known quite what to do with her own perception. That's important about my mother because we were poor. She married my father when she was 18. They've only been with each other. They only, they've only, they've been together all their lives. Still around? Still around, both Still of them. Married. Still married. Still <laughs> married. Oh my word, is that a good idea? I don't know. I think they got along better when they were yeah. 18. You're Switzerland, you're agnostic. <laughs> you do not express an opinion. I do not. <laughs> I admire um, the longevity and and it what an example of of unconditional love they are. Uh, I, I admire the loyalty. I'm in, I am bred with loyalty. I'm bred with, which is kind of hard to find. They are they're simple in a way and and the most complex people in the world in a way. How did your mother express her creativity? She made things out of nothing because she had nothing. So I can look at my business here and tell you that 95% of Eastside Local Eatery, this little eatery that I've created, 95% of this is made out of things that people were throwing away. We turned things into, into other things. Uh, and that's what my mother did. And, and I guess, you know, as you get older, you realize where things really come from. So I have all these memories of her taking 
banana split boats and saying, oh yes, you have a Barbie house. Here's Barbie's boat. Oh yes, Barbie has, Barbie has lamps. We have all the lamps we need. Take the top off the palm olive bottle, turn it upside down, and Barbie has a beautiful little white lamp in her bedroom that doesn't exist in anywhere but imagination. So my mother had this huge imagination. She wanted to make life magic for us, and she did, for me in particular. I think, you know, my sister's experience is not always the same, but for me, there was something where she made life magic for me. Did, did you know at the time, did you say to yourself, we're poor? No. Like when you went to school, did you? No, I had no idea we were poor. Um, I had no idea how much we were struggling until we moved south. And So you moved from where to where? I moved from Andrews Air Force Base to Huntersville, North Carolina. In the fourth grade, I'm, we moved. And I had grown up military. I had grown up in military schools. Uh, Huntersville was a shock. I didn't adjust well. My mother didn't adjust what easily. What was shocking about it? Well, I was in little dresses and knee socks that were controlled by the government no more than three inches. And I came into a school where some people came barefoot and some people had shorts on and everybody had a southern accent and I had a Yankee. Believe it or not, now I had myself a little Yankee accent. And my mother, what I remember about that experience is that what my mother carried with her in her baggage was losing her independence, what she had gained by going to DC, learning how to drive on all those clover leaves, taking care of her two children, oftentimes by herself, dealing with my father suddenly leaving and not knowing where he was, uh, there was a real uh, solid strength and independence that she had in D.C. And she came back, and we were in the middle of our Southern family. What is inherently in a Southern family kind of is the sh is a shame. You know it. It felt like to me, this is my adult looking at my little girl going, why are we moving to shame? In the Air Force, if you live in a trailer, you're smart because you take your home with you. It was very important to my mother. Take home with us. Take all our dishes. We're not moving apartment to apartment and we're gonna have something to show for our hard work. We'll be able to sell this trailer and not have wasted all our money on rent. And I was brought up to know that. But when we moved south to live in a trailer was to become white trash. And I heard that word for the first time out of the mouth of someone in my family. That was different. And I didn't, um, I had a hard time making friends because there was a lot of Yankee prejudice, you know. Uh, people thought I was conceited, thought I was better than people, and it was because I was really shy and I didn't say much. I could go on and tell you about my fourth grade, my first friend, Nancy Hooper. So she was different, she accepted you. Nancy Hooper lived way out in the country and Nancy Hooper, who was still living, God know, only knows where she is, she was kind to me and she didn't care. She did not care what anybody else thought. She had been raised, um, what I learned about was camp meeting and the Baptist kindness and you don't judge people. I mean, somewhere in Nancy Hooper's benevolence, she reached out to me. She also loved to gossip and she could hook me in up. So you had the inside scoop. Inside scoop with Nancy. But Nancy, invited me for a sleepover, met her family. Should we hold for sound? No, that's fine. <laughs> okay. It's where we are. It's where we are. Welcome to the east side. Um, but I've told this story before. I didn't think I was going to tell it today, but I will, about how I lost my virginity but really didn't. <laughs> I don't know how that works. 
<laughs> well, in the fourth grade, Nancy invites me to a sleepover at her house. Um, and I, there I am in my knee socks and my little, little military self, get off the school bus, total farm. Um, we get off the bus and, and uh, with her, her sister Sherry Lynn and her brother, brother Jepty Jr. <laughs> we get off the bus and she says, okay, you know, we're going to run through the field. If the bull chases you now, you just jump over the fence. It's okay. Bull chased me. Jumped over the fence, barbed wire caught on my pants, ripped my pants open. I was like, okay, okay. Then they did this thing where they said, we're going to have a shit fight. So they start pummeling dried clods of cow poop at each other. M me, I had been a, a, you know, white glove kid. So I knew my mother would not approve of me picking that up with my bare hands. So I got pummeled with cow poop. Uh, they suggested I ride the horse through the leaves. The horse rolled over on me because that's what horses do. I'm in fourth grade, right? I wonder it didn't break every bone in your body. I, I survived that. Uh, we had dinner, which was kind of a little bit, uh, it was an, I learned every, every cuss word that I could even think of at the dinner table. Then uh, the next morning, I woke up and Nancy had these two little, I had a great time. I was having a great time, right? I, I don't want to be disparaging to the like Hoopers. Amusement park. Because I, what, I was like, I had made a friend. I love Nancy Hooper. I love her to this day. Uh, but I wake up the next morning and Nancy's in the shower and I'm sitting on the edge of the bed and her little brother, Jepty Jr., comes walking into the room. And he says, I don't know if I can say, I guess, guess I can say this, right? He comes, he's all of like 10 years old. And he comes up to me and he says, while you and Nancy were asleep last night, I snuck in here and I fucked you. <laughs> and had you ever heard that word? Did you have any? Cuss? I knew what it was. <laughs> and I knew I wasn't supposed to do it yet. <laughs> But I also had this biblical story in my mind about Mary, you know, that just, especially when you're a little girl, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, she didn't do that wrong thing that you're not supposed to do, but still she was going to have a baby, and I know that that's what makes a baby, so I was instantaneously pregnant with Jeppy Jr.'s child, right? Jeffy Jr. Jr. Jeffy Jr. Jr. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. My mother is not going to believe me. I don't remember this. I don't know what happened. Oh God. I was like, oh God. Nancy comes out of the shower and, you know, we're fourth graders. I said, I told her what Jeffy had said and she said, I said, oh my God. Nancy, do you think he really did that? And Nancy got burst into tears. I don't know. He probably did. I can't have anybody over. <laughs> Mama! Yeah, of all the things, it's like this ruins the sleepovers. This ruins, Jeffy, I can't have anybody over. Jeffy is always impregnating so did, them. Did, 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 <laughs> did you speak to his mother or something? When well, she screamed, Mama. Okay, so first, the first reaction was, oh my God, you're going to tell your mother. You're going to tell your mother. So Mildred comes in, cigarette in mouth, cigarette. smoking that cigarette. And Nancy said, tells her the whole story of what Jeppy's done. Mildred, in all her infinite wisdom, never stopped to say, that's impossible, that didn't happen, you're fine, you're not pregnant, oh God. She simply said, God damn it. Jeppy, I thought I told you not to, <laughs> to bother these girls. So I'm sitting there going, is that it? Is that all that happens to him? Oh, my God. No one ever told me. And I was so full of shame that what I did was for the next seven or eight months, every time I walked by a mirror, I turned sideways to see if the baby bump was coming, 
if it was going to happen. I knew sometimes it did and sometimes it didn't, but most times it did. So I told, I finally, I was so um, filled with shame and stuff that I finally told my mother that story when I was 30. <laughs> and, her re- and her reaction was, oh my God, I'm a horrible mother. <laughs> she blamed herself. Yes, of course. She could have kept, could have kept you from the spend the night party. Yes, why didn't I have a better eye on but you? But your mother did not regard those people as trashy, obviously. I mean, your mother was obviously very open, you know, to... My, yeah, my mother loves everybody. What kind of kid were you in high school? I went from, in ninth grade, in junior high school, I got the superlative of most popular, because that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to make friends. And I wanted to be a cheerleader, which I never was, really. You were, Did you go out for it? Oh, yes, yes. And so you were the perennial also ran. <laughs> yes. By high school, I got most independent, I think, most, most liberated. I got most liberated. Imagine Congratulations. that. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm proud of it now. At the time, I was like, what does that mean? And were you some kind of uh, Gloria Steinem person for North Mac? Why did they call you most liberated? I don't know. I couldn't figure it out. Um, maybe it was because I did things that shocked people. Like? Like played electric guitar for my talent in the beauty pageant. What song? When Will I Be Loved. Ah, interesting. Did you sing it as well? Mm-hmm. And did you plug in, I guess? Oh, yeah. I plugged in. And I think that the person playing the piano was a half a step lower than me. (laughs) (laughs) Too bad there's not video of that. (laughs) Terrible. So Um, you did not win. I I did not win. I did get in the top ten, and number four is still my favorite number because I was number four in the beauty pageant. Excellent. So when did you first start, like, playing music? You know, for real, play your own stuff, that kind of thing. I sang in public for the first time on my 15th birthday because my sister dated musicians chronically and habitually. So she brought all these musicians to the house, and I wanted to, I don't know if I wanted to be a singer or if I wanted to be Linda Ronstadt, and I didn't realize that it was already taken. Um, But I loved Linda Ronstadt. I want, At 15, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, My mother got me singing lessons. You know, of course, I was learning all these arias and stuff that I didn't want to sing. My uh, sister's boyfriend let me sing That'll Be the Day in public with his band at the American Legion Hall. so that, that started a and thing. And how were you received? Great. I mean, it was all my sister's friends who thought I would, you so know. So you got a round of applause. I got a round of applause. The most horrible thing is I was all dressed and ready to go, and my mother said, I wonder, I wonder if you've thought of one thing, honey. What if they boo you? <laughs> oh, great. That's confidence building. And, and what were you wearing? I well before my mother said that I was wearing um, I was wearing a black jumpsuit, and after my mother said that and I cried my makeup off, I changed into blue jean gauchos with um, with matching plaid around the collar. Although crying your makeup off is a look. I know. I was before my time. You're before you know, punk. Before. I know. Before God. <laughs> Before pre-Blondie. That's a cultivated look. And I was very much into punk music because I played in punk bands. Um, you know, when did after you first get paid? When did I first get paid? I had a little garage band with some guys in high school, and we got paid a little bit. All boys? All boys and me. Now, were you the girl singer, or did you also, like, back back them up on things? I played a little bit of guitar. We did Bonnie Raitt and 
Lynn Ronstadt stuff and Fleetwood Mac. By this time, my sister was threatened not to be able to go to the Fleetwood Mac Rumors concert unless she took me. So by this time, I had seen Stevie Nicks' nose hairs, basically, because I we went to Rumors twice. Where was it? Uh, here in Greensboro, Charlotte Colise- old Charlotte Coliseum. And my sister had to babysit me. So I've told this story a million times too, but my sister had to babysit me. And she either took me to the concert or she didn't get to go. So she took me, we got to the door of the Coliseum and she said, if you see me in there, don't act like you know me, meet me back here when it's all over. So I made my way down to the floor and onto the shoulders, because I was tiny. when I would make my way down to the floor, there was always some drunken man who would put me on his shoulders, and I was like, Stevie Nicks was here, I was here. Oh, my word. It was fantastic. And it, and it solidified, okay, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Uh, and so how much money did your little band earn when you actually, they actually paid you? I think that, I think we might made, might have made $25 or and how much of that did you see? Five bucks? Yeah, bucks, probably. Like yeah, and, and then there was a nice, uh, really great man who owned a restaurant in town when I was 15 who hired me for $15 a night to play in his restaurant by myself with my guitar, which I was terrible. I was terrible. What kind of stuff? Linda Ronstadt, uh, Carter family. The Carter family was easy to play. I loved that old. Um, Emmy Lou Harris did all that Carter family, so I was like, okay, Maybell Carter, all of that stuff started then. I learned the Carter scratch. I learned how to play that stuff and loved it. Uh, when you left home, you went where? I went into an apartment in Noda. Ah, interesting. Did you have a roommate, boyfriend? I'd- I had, uh, there was a woman who played in a band. Um, the closest thing to me that I, I was able to see, there used to be a band in Charlotte called the Moore and Perrin Sisters. All-female band, uh, they were really good, and she played bass, and by that time I had switched to bass because uh, my sister's boyfriend said, learn to play the bass because no one ever wants to play the bass and you'll always have a place in the band if you learn to play bass, which is true. Um, bass That's players, smart. Bass players get bored. Bass is fun. It's still my favorite instrument. I love it. Um, but she played bass and she was really good and she was a blues singer and she needed a roommate and she had an apartment which still exists in Noda and the rent was $125 a month. People in Noda now doing that in like a day, a few days. <laughs> um, it must also be said, the number of iconic bass lines that begin songs mm-hmm. just off the charts. Yeah. And when you start thinking about it. What she taught me about too, uh, about strong women and women who just do what they've been doing. I had never heard of a bass player named Carol Kay. Hmm. And Car- I have all Carol Kay's books. I, I have like emailed Carol, Carol Kay now. But she played bass on all those mega hits. All of the, these boots are made for walking. That's her bass line. Um, all of the Beach Boys stuff, all of those fantastic rhythm section, iconic songs, mm-hmm. was Carol Kay, yep. you know? So how'd it go in your career and your, how'd you make money when you, how'd you make the rent money? I made the rent by playing in a duo. Um, and So you were a professional musician straight out of high school? Yeah, pretty much. That's amazing. Not many people do that. Not many people have the confidence to do that. <laughs> was it confidence or you just didn't know any better? It was absolute ignorance and gall and determination. I just refused to believe that I I couldn't do it, so I didn't know. I didn't know any better. 
I was like, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm going to do it. And, and then all I could figure out from that point is I need to write songs. So I started writing. I figured it out. Um, I was always really blessed with older guys who were more than willing to teach me. The double door back then was full of these great R&B um, blues musicians, and I was there constantly. So where's an 18-year-old or 19-year-old in Charlotte go now? I don't know. I mean, they can go to the Muse. I mean, there's an open mic, mm -hmm. um, but I don't know that you have the culture that the Double Door would have. I don't know that Charlotte has the music scene. I don't know. That's a good question because I don't know. At this point in my life, I don't know that there's a uh, respect for the elders that I had with older musicians. Like I was walking into the double door to these blues musicians going, this is, this is the teacher of rock and roll. I can't go learn rock and roll at UNCC where I was a theater student. I was like, I, where am I gonna get this? These old guys, they're, they're 70 years old and they'll teach me this scale. They'll teach me what they're doing. I can watch them all night long and I did. It, that was a real education to me. I don't know that that exists now. I don't sense, I'm sure it does on some level. I, you know, I sound like an old person saying that because I am a little bit of an old person. I think it's unfortunate because there are so many talented people who live in Charlotte who are musicians that it, it really sort of needs a kind of intentional ecosystem. Yeah, I think so too. And I think I think Joe Coolman at the Evening Muse helps and tries to do that. And he and I have these conversations about Charlotte in particular and this is this is really something that not has been gnawing at me for years that Charlotte has a lack of self-esteem artistically because the artists are here. More often than not they leave Charlotte, and this this is visual arts. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Um, actors leave, directors leave, um, musicians leave, because it it's just the ground isn't fertile, and there is some sort of uh, pervasive feeling that if you're from here and you live here. You must not be that good, because we need to go see what's coming out of New York. And I've lived in New York. I've lived in Nashville, you know. Um, and so is Joe. So have other people. And right next door is VizArt, which is also a very interesting space. And so if you have a place like the Manor Theater that used to show, uh, it's not just the space. It's that in, in that space, or a theater mm -hmm. in Charlotte that opens and closes. It's not just that theater company, that movie house, that bar, that restaurant. It's that they were the place that you could go to book this. You know, they created, mm -hmm. they were part of an ecosystem. So tell me what your ideas were behind these places. Okay, so I should probably say that I'm executive director of VizArt as well as uh, part owner of Eastside Local. And so... Which are side by side. Which are side by side. And the vision is, and it's happening, uh, we are mating. We are going to open up with a garage this is door. Be better than... What's his name? <laughs> Jeffy Hooper. <laughs> it's actually going to produce it's something. Actually. So what we are trying to create is, for one thing, and we got a grant to help us do, do this, which is from? promising. We got an innovation grant um, from Center City Partners, and Honeywell is a big, many companies. Even though you're not technically in the Center City. Yes. Um, and that's a result of COVID. Ah. These grants were coming out, and they 
put out there, how are you gonna, how are you going to uh, change what you're doing to accommodate this new normal? And I went to the coaching session about getting this grant and they said, if, if two businesses collaborate, you're gonna have a better chance. And if you get a matching, if you get matching funds, you're gonna have a better chance of getting this. So I didn't know that I didn't know how to write a grant. I just wrote one. Um, and we got it. And what you're gonna do is, as I understand, you're gonna tear down that wall. Yeah. Or tear a hole in that wall. Yes, while the president was building a wall, we're like, we're <laughs> gonna tear one down. What always works is alcohol. <laughs> and so you're going to bridge these two businesses with uh, beer, wine, mimosas, etc., with your permit, right? Right. Beer, wine, uh, well, all things addictive, including <laughs> chocolate and popcorn. It's also, that's a very social kind of thing. It's a way to make money. It's a social thing. And it'll bridge the, the Vizart, the film house, with the music, performance, poetry, and food, yes. which is... Brilliant. I love it. Did you I, come up with that? I did. I didn't have any sense of that this can't happen. I had a big sense of it needs to happen because I don't know how ESL is going to survive and I don't know how VizArt's going to survive. VizArt is the largest collection of film and video on the East Coast, bar none. How many films? 40,000. Mostly on uh, DVD. Yeah, yeah, the, the physical collection. So, and some really eclectic and interesting stuff is available there that people don't realize. This is not blockbuster. This is this is this more is, like a library. Yes, it definitely is. It's a film archive now, and it is fully nonprofit. And a cultural resource. It is, and a reason to come to Charlotte. And it makes Charlotte not boring, which it desperately needs. Yes. Yeah, I mean, people flip out over VizArt when they finally find out that it's They here. have to discover it. Mm -hmm. It's on Atlas Obscura. Are you familiar with oh, yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, I get their daily emails. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Yeah, it's on there. Um, and I think that what's going to happen because of this grant, it, it, I haven't seen it happen anywhere in Charlotte. Maura Quinn called me to say, Gina, you got this grant, and I need to tell you that the, the decision makers flipped out over this. And I was so um, complimented by that, and so that was everything to me. Because I don't need to tell you, when you do something that no one else has done before, there's a periphery of people going, boy, this is a harebrained idea. Boy, I wish you hadn't done this. Boy, this is never going to fly. And all of a sudden, it was like, oh, this is flying. This airplane just, thank you, Wilbur Wright. We're... Yeah this is going to happen and the beauty of it is the collaborative effort and that that businesses don't do this typically you know they don't look for those win-wins and it's a huge win-win it's we put in a garage door here VizArt has open air and in the time of covid you can literally sit here on this patio and you can watch a movie outside. You're going to be able to see it. And you have access to good, healthy, vegan food. And uh, Eastside Local, which is 900 square feet, all total inside, has no inside seating. So when it's December, January, and it's cold out here, you can take your food in there and eat your food and you can watch a you know we're talking about doing things like um coffee and cinema so we have an old classic movie playing while you drink your latte or we we do cupcakes and cartoons for kids let me just say beats the hell out of cable news which depresses the shit out of me in restaurants I'm like turn turn it off the damn news off but if you have one of these great old movies that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, you can start your day that way. I've been really into starting my day with positivity, looking at, looking at the positive of things instead of... How do you do of, that? Um, 
Well, I'm reading this this book, and I can't remember the name of it. I'm so sorry. About, you know, a lot of it is turning off stuff. Amen. Just turn it off. <laughs> it's hard to do. Well, I think VizArt is just, as I say, these are, this is the texture of Charlotte, which the city, as it blows up. I think these small cultural resources, the Evening News, Eastside Local, Vizart, The Manor, God rest in peace, you know, because those are places where you can see the, a documentary, a foreign film, you can see something, it, they're eclectic. Yeah. They provide texture. And they, they I agree completely and I think they provide for Charlotte a portal to positivity to um, I love the quote of nothing destroys prejudice quicker than travel well we've got foreign films we've got travel we've got travel back in time at Bizart we've got travel forward in time we've got across the seas we've got a lot the mission of, of VizArt and of ESL is to welcome everything, everything and everybody, every idea, every, I mean, that's what we want to do. That's what we want to be, you know, a place, a safe place yeah. for that. Open and welcoming. From playing for $15 a night to becoming a rock and roller, um, how did that evolution happen? One of my friends in high school, Hope Nichols, had a band called Fetch and Bones, which was a punk band. Um, we had worked in theater together. I started playing bass for Fetch and Bones. Um, oh God, great, great creative experience again, because the musicians in Fetch and Bones didn't didn't know the rules. Um, I was a music major at UNCC at the time that I was in Fetch and Bones, so I was learning all the all of this theory, and I had learned it from my sister's boyfriend's music theory, you know, this in this key, you're not supposed to play this note, and then I get in this rock and roll band where they don't know, so they just do it, and it is still one of the most creative, greatest bands, I think, because they didn't know that they weren't supposed to do like kind of a bluegrass thing and throw that throw that chord in there and it and it was hillbilly punk when i played with them that it, it changed over time when i when i wasn't there electric uh, or acoustic uh, electric bass is what i played for fetch and bones and i sang and it was uh complete freedom of a band you know it was you play what you feel and it came, It just turned into this thing that was wonderful. And Hope was really daring about booking us into New York. We played the Pyramid Club. We played CBGB's back in the day. We did all of that stuff. And uh, we, played, we played all over the East Coast and, um, and did some recording with Don Dixon. Uh, Hope was really good friends with R.E.M. So, we kind of got into that Athens, Georgia scene. Um, 40 Watt Club. Yeah, 40 Watt Club all the time. Loved it. It's a great, it, it was just a great uh, memory of, of things. So that, that made me want to do it even more. Uh, when you're on stage and the, you're in sync with the crowd, what, what is that like when the crowd is into it and you're in sync with them what is, what it, is there's just there's nothing like it there's nothing like it um, when it's real and when it's good it's um, it's soul communion because you've got people that uh, wouldn't naturally commune with each other necessarily not necessarily friends but for that two hours or however long it lasts, there's the f there's a Grateful Dead fan or there's a Beatles fan, and that's 
it's common ground and it's it's powerful really there's a lot of history in this but with the all the racial divides and everything music is something that people can coalesce around mm -hmm. i mean it really is something that they they just it kind of collapses yeah um, i mean the arts are in general i think i think across the board the arts are the hope of the world you know it's going to be it's up to artists and and cities to to uh cultivate that creativity because the problems and the divisions are so huge it's not going to be solved by the minds that created it right it's got to be something that's outside of it's got to be tapped into a vein of that unity and that commonality of human beings where did your career go from? after that yeah like what what was the arc of your career i ended up quitting fetch and bones right before they landed a bigger record deal than the one that they had um which was initially with db records but i quit to finish college because i had quit college to play with bands so many times i had exhausted myself and my parents and i was like okay I really, I was literally flying in from New York at seven o'clock in the morning after playing a gig at CBGB's and doing a dance uh, exam sometimes back at UNCC. I was a theater dance major. So I ended up quitting to finish college. The minute I graduated, I was like, I got to have a band, I got to make a band. Um, so, I made this little band called The Blind Dates with Penny, who's part owner of ESL, and uh, Deanna Campbell, who was another singer-songwriter. And Penny played? Penny played the drums when there weren't many women that played drums. This is dumb. Did she use to Dish? Dish, yeah. Dish Restaurant, and she owned The Milestone for a while, and she owned Tremont Music Hall oh for a God. while. <laughs> And she played drums like a banshee. She still does. She's retired now with her feet up at Surf City. So what kind of music did y'all create? Okay, I'll tell you the, the, uh, the true story of the Blind Dates. We did all original music uh, uh, at a time when nobody was doing that. We were a three-piece all-female. I played bass, Deanna played guitar, and Penny played the drums. And uh, we had a manager out of Raleigh, and we were trying to get that elusive record deal. Uh, and I remember this, Penny reminds me of this all the time. Our manager was in Los Angeles meeting with record companies. Uh, it really was kind of boiling down to two all-female groups who did all original music, us, the Blind Dates, and the Bangles. So that's what didn't happen. Um, that wasn't the reason we stopped playing. You know, bands just kind of fizzle out. And, uh, and we kind of just fizzled. Well, also, the road is hard. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. really hard. That was, that was at a time when uh, that band, Fetch and Bones kind of centered around the Athens uh, vibe and the New York vibe that was happening. The Blind Date centered more in Atlanta with the Indigo Girls and bands that were coming out of Atlanta at that time. And we were a little, we were, we were not punk. We were rock with some, with some real folky edges to us. But we did, a, we rocked really. If you'd have been, if you'd have had a home club like in Charlotte, mm -hmm. you think it might've made a difference? You know, we did, uh, Milestone was probably our home club. There was another club called 4808 and the Pterodactyl Club. There was a music scene when the Blind Dates were around. There were, there were bands, um, and I, I hear people say always that that was the golden age of the music scene in Charlotte. Uh, I, I think there's going to be another one. I hope so. I think so. 
those brew pubs need things to distinguish them. And so I think there's an opportunity there for, you know, culture. Yeah, and they are employing bands, and we want to do the same thing. I want to back up and say something, because we have talked about alcohol and the, the drive for culture for that, but there's another thing happening, and ESL really wants to be a huge part of the sober curious crowd. Yeah, and that's a demand. That's a demand. Yeah, I mean, I feel it, and I see it across the board that people... Uh, really want to be stimulated, fed culturally, and they don't always want to be in, intoxicated to do it. Think, too, um, you know, what can happen in that vibe. What you want as a musician, as an artist, is you want people to be listening to you. You don't want to wake up and go, wait, are they listening to me or am I their excuse to get drunk? Right. Because that's disheartening. And in Nashville, um, the station in Bluegrass, they would shush you. And they serve beer. Mm -hmm. Like you could have a pitcher of beer, but it was such a listening room and people were looking at the fingers on the frets. People were studying. Yeah. There were students and they didn't want, they created a culture I think there are other listening rooms too. Maybe the Bluebird was like that too. Yeah, I'm really glad you're bringing that up because it's been, a, we have an alcohol license at ESL and we are not really telling anybody, which is one of our, you know, I'm famous for making dumb financial moves, get a bunch of money into getting an alcohol license and then not telling anybody. Well, you know, it's like, but we want it to be I have said a million times, uh, I want to be really careful about this because what I want to do is kind of follow more the model of what Blumenthal does mm -hmm. as you have a bar, you can get a drink, you can take your drink in there. But once the play starts, the bar stops. You can't walk out of the play and go get another drink. That's not what we're doing. And I want to make sure that with VizArt, once the movie starts, the bar goes away. That's, and here uh, at ESL too, same thing with the music. I don't want it to be, I don't want this place to be about alcohol. You know, I think, I think with the Sober Curious movement and it, it, it's enlightening people to how uncomfortable we're for whatever reason. You know, it could be people in recovery. It could be people who are pregnant. It could just be a woman who's out by herself, who doesn't want to be in a total drunken kind of environment that's about that. That so, you're there for the music or you're yeah. there for the poetry. Or... And by the same token, like we've got some alcohol-free wines and things like that so that they're and kombuchas and things like that so that you can still celebrate you can still participate and not go down that road i think that's really important we've gotten to talk about these abstractions charlotte and music and everything you seem happy you're happy i'm real happy cool. i'm absurdly happy because it goes back to the episode that i that you did. I was listening to you um, about boundaries and the peace that comes with that, being able to do that. I was not, the thing my mother did not give me was a toolbox for how to set boundaries. And, um, and so that's part of what we're talking about. And I'm learning very late in life how to draw the line, like even relating to what you were just saying of, okay, I draw the line, I, you know, I go to dinner, I do this, I, and then I go home. And being able to, to draw that line, is a, it, that's a huge happiness for me late in life, learning how to say, I'm gonna be loyal to me, I'm worth it, uh, I matter, you know, and hey, you know, you do your thing, but I'm going to do mine. 
thank God I have a choice because I don't know that I've always felt like I had a choice. Um, and, and I also have a choice of nobody's going nobody's gonna to take my joy. They don't get that because I am happy. The hardest thing, though, as a, as a songwriter, I did, this crossed my mind this morning, uh, music, writing songs was always the thing that helped me get through betrayals and things that I wasn't, uh, heartache. It helped me. Um, I haven't quite figured out, which is kind of exciting, how to let music express how happy I am. Hmm. So what you're saying, easier to write a sad song than it is to write a... Yeah, easier to write a, a song about struggle than to write a song about, hmm, I'm just happy, you know? Um, because the song itself is what gets you through the struggle? Yeah, it? yeah. So when the struggle is, I don't know, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting because I... In opening a restaurant, I, I've spent the last three or four years not writing, and I just woke up. I uh, went on vacation for a week and wrote three songs. What does writing look like? Do you get your guitar? Mm -hmm. so I used to not. I used to pour over these notebooks or napkins or whatever I was doing. You know, If I'm waiting tables, all of a sudden the waitress pad is a song. Um, lyrics. Lyrics, constantly, constantly, because I love poetry. So I did that all the time. I was always working two jobs, trying to write and do whatever else somebody else thought I was doing. So you write these things down, but now mm -hmm. you're, mm -hmm. do you sit and like noodle away at the Somewhere, away at the and I don't know when it happened, but somewhere it became linked to my hands. So now I sit down with the guitar and let it, let whatever happens happen. Um, sometimes I'll push record so that it's there. Uh, and sometimes I just start scratching it on, scratching it down and hope I remember it. And luckily I have people around me who will go, ah, uh, you probably should record that or who will throw their phone down in front of me and go, just just keep it, okay, so that I have it to go back to. Yeah, it all happens at once now. And it started doing that maybe maybe 10 years ago. It, it just started to be linked to what I hear. That's magic. It is magic. I know that I can see, that I see words and, and I hear the underscore to them. I, this was... This was something I figured out. I was like, well, I thought everybody did that. And I said it to somebody. I was like, when I, if I read a book, I hear the underscoring for it. Um, I can't, I, I, I don't know if I, if my musical skill is always up to par f to be able to express what I hear um, but when I started writing a little bit for theater, I realized that, and I have to just thank God for this because it's a gift and I, I don't know where it comes from. It's a tap into, I can read a script and I, I hear music, you know? And I thought, well, everybody does that. No. They don't. <laughs> I know. They have other things that they do equally as, as wonderful and generous. Very few people will read a script and hear music. Well, I'm grateful for it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. If we get struck by lightning and the only thing that survives is this tape, um, what's your legacy? I hope that my, I'm remembered as somebody with a generous heart. Uh, I've never had much money to be generous with, but I'm generous with my love. Um, I, that I would like to be remem remembered as a voice for um, collaboration, because that's what I love, and happiness. You know? I hope people remember me as 
is hap- I, I know that uh, my insides, I know that I smile because I can't help it. Because it's good. It's good here. You know, and gratitude. I am grateful to know you, Gina Stewart, to know more about you. I honor and acknowledge all the work you've done for Charlotte and for music. And Likewise, I'm my, honored my to know you. My life is richer for knowing you. Mine is too. Interesting you, person. Mine is too. I've listened to you from a distance <laughs> in certain situations for a well, long time. Thank you for your time. The man listened to me. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> We're definitely using that. You can find Gina Stewart most days, Wednesday through Sunday anywhere, at East Side Local. It's right next to VizArt in the shopping center on Eastway, just before Central Avenue. Thank you, Gina. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. A thank you from the bottom of my heart for the people who support Man Listening and have supported us from the very beginning. Thanks so much. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Click the subscribe button and next week you'll hear. There's dementia in my family. There's alcoholism in my family. There's clearly mental illness in my family. And I mean, I would qualify as being mentally ill myself. I feel no shame about that whatsoever. That's next week on Man Listening. Thanks.